0: Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. Traditionally we've measured the performance of the health system machine on hard endpoints such as mortality, and this is particularly so in the ICU. In recent years, however, we've begun to focus more on the patient experience, including their functional outcomes. Narrative and qualitative research has provided us with a better understanding of the emotional, psychological and physical trauma imposed by critical illness. Carly Dayton is a nurse practitioner in the ICU, and through her podcast, Walking Home from the ICU, has helped shine a spotlight on this important issue through a series of interviews with survivors of critical illness, and she joins me today on the podcast to share some of her insights. Carly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Carly, you've been doing a podcast series on survivors of ICU. What was the initial motivation for doing that podcast?
1: Um, I have worked in an awake and walk in ICU for about seven years, and initially when I started my career as a nurse in that ICU, I knew nothing else about critical care. I thought that was normal, so it wasn't very significant to me until I became a travel nurse, and, and before I left, people tried to tell me, hey, things are going to be different elsewhere. You're not going to be in Kansas anymore. Uh, but I didn't know what that meant. And then I started working in ICUs across the United States and everyone on a ventilator was deeply sedated. I didn't know who my patients were. I didn't know what their neurostatuses were doing. I didn't move them and it felt wrong to me. And I, I didn't understand what the culture was. And so I would ask other doctors and nurses, Hey, can I wake them up and get them moving? And they would look at me like I was crazy and say, no, they're they're sedated, and I'd say, okay, but why are they sedated? Because these were the same patients I was taking care of in the other unit, same diagnosis, same acuity, same Apache scores, probably. Um, and they would look at me like I was delusional and say, "Well, they're sedated because they're intubated." And then I would say, "But why are they sedated?" And so I realized that there was a huge disconnect, and that our experiences are in our. Treatments are based in our own experiences and training. So I took that with me as I went to grad school, but we still didn't talk about sedation and immobility. We'd go through case studies, or patients have severe respiratory distress and they're intubated, and they'd be automatically started on propofol. Oh, and then they get hypotensive, we start a vasopressor, and I was the only one looking around wondering if this was sounding so weird. And I was. I was the only one. So I just had these little moments when I was realizing how alone I was in my perspective and in my approach to patient care. But the big tipping point was when I was on a plane and um, I think I was in grad school at that point And I sat next to a man who asked me what I did for a living. And I told him I was an ICU nurse at the time and the color just dropped from his face. And he started telling me about his ICU experience. It sounded like he had a perforated esophagus from a procedure, septic peritonitis and, and was on a ventilator for a few weeks. But he mentioned very little about the ventilator. What he mentioned was watching trees falling on him and monsters coming out of the wall. And at first I thought, well, that sounds like a scary dream. Yep, that would be rough. But the more he talked, the more I realized this was not a dream for him. This was so real that he still, four years later, as he talked, it seemed like he was still trying to reconcile what was real and what wasn't. Like, did that really happen? His psyche was not sure. And so when he talked about this, he had tears running down his face. And he was in his late 40s. And he had no other comorbidities. And he said, if I ever end up critically ill, I'm I'm a DNR DNI. I do not want to go back to the ICU, no matter how treatable it is. And that is what hit me. I had never heard what ICU delirium was really like for patients. And so that's when I really started diving into the research. And every time I read something and compared it to my experiences in the wake and walk in ICU, I kept thinking the ICU community doesn't know this. They do not have this perspective. I myself had sat amongst other nurses, other travel nurses in these other units and joked about sedating patients and wanting them as quiet as can be. And I kind of thought it was funny because I didn't know what that really meant, and now I, it makes me sick. <laughs> I, I, I mean, those jokes are inhumane, but they're done in ignorance. And so that was my big motivator for starting the podcast was to help share patient perspective among the ICU community. And once we understand what patients really go through when they're deeply sedated and immobilized during their ICU stay and then what their lives are like after, then we can start talking about the ADF bundle and early mobility and all those things. But we keep throwing out protocols without... Are why and so that's my main motivation for the podcast is to rehumanize the ICU.
0: Kelly, you've done nearly a hundred uh, patient interviews now uh, on your website. What are some of the three or four key themes that come up for the patient experience in an ICU?
1: Usually it's the delirium that's um, they often are not told that they're going to be completely sedated. A lot of these patients knew that they were going to be on a ventilator. Um, I just interviewed a COVID survivor. He told his wife, he was telling her, I'll text you, I'll email you. And she was saying, I don't think you will be, but he didn't know that. No one told him that he would not only be so deeply sedated, but that he was going to be thrown into a totally different world. He didn't have a whole lot of experiences during his sedation, but he woke up thinking that he was wanted for murder. And he even saw on the walls writing and things that, told him that he was um, waiting to be imprisoned because he was wanted for homicide. So his was even slight compared to a lot of other survivors talking about watching their siblings be dismembered, guts pouring out of them, babies burning, genital mutilation, just the worst horrific things you could think of. That's what their imaginations are conjuring. And it's not, not a nightmare. It's reality. It is vivid to them. So I don't even call it a even hallucinations we call it experiences this is, this is what the patient's experienced and so talking to survivors that's mostly what they're talking about is their delirium another patient said that he wasn't um, traumatized by being sedated he was one of the lucky ones to not have any experiences but his PTSD comes from coming out of sedation and not being able to move a finger he was so weak he had no control over his body and he did have del- delirium after that. Um, and his whole horrific rehabilitation, how painful and difficult it was, how demoralizing and inhumane it was to have to have his backside wiped for months because he couldn't do it for himself. And I compare those experiences to what I see in the wake and walking ICU, which where a lot of patients on ventilators are getting themselves to the toilets. They're getting up to walk and we just make a pit stop They can wipe their own backside. They can suction their own mouths. They can wash their hands, brush their own teeth. I mean, I just didn't appreciate the humanity of it until I heard from survivors what it was like to be rendered that helpless.
0: Kelly, when people tell you stories like this, what sort of things do they suggest could be done better for them during their, uh, their stay in ICU?
1: I feel like these ICU survivors are some of my lifelong friends now because they are so driven to want to help the ICU community understand what autonomy means to them. They want to be informed. They want to, you can't give an informed consent prior to intubation unless you really inform them. So on my podcast, episode 62, I go through the whole list of repercussions of sedation and mobility, increased risk of death, of infection, of pressure injury, of Prolonged time in the ventilator, prolonged time in the hospital, post-ICPTSD, post-ICP dementia. I mean, you go in for a surgery, and before you are wheeled back, you have to sign a consent form authorizing that. And they go through any remote possible risk that could happen, right? Yet the risks involved with sedation and mobility are far more prevalent than those things that they disclose for these little surgeries. Yet we don't mention a thing. They also want to know why they were not told upon leaving the hospital what they had experienced. No one, most of these cases, no one had told them that they had delirium, let alone that they are at high risk of having post-ICU PTSD and post-ICU dementia. So I go to survivor pages on Facebook, and that's where I learn about these things and what it's really like. And people are talking amongst themselves. Hey, are you having a hard time paying attention? Are you having problems with memory, have you been able to go back to work? Because I haven't and it's been three years. They're looking for validation amongst other survivors because they get none of it from the ICU community. We are totally oblivious to the brain injury that we've caused with sedation. And so they want us to know what they've gone through in the ICU and what life is going to be like afterward so that we can prevent that harm, but also prepare ICU survivors for what lies ahead and provide support for them. Patient gets a kidney injury during the ICU, they follow up with nephrology. They have ARDS, they follow up with pulmonology. When they have delirium, good luck. You're on your own. We should have support for psychiatric services and um, cognitive rehabilitation and all those things. And yet we're too oblivious of those effects to even um, be able to teach our patients that.
0: Kelly, in your journey, you must have looked into some of the reasons why we've ended up in the position that we're in as an industry. What are some of the themes? Because I'm I'm sure that a lot of these practices are born from good intent. Why have have we fallen into this um, pattern of behaviour?
1: That's a great question. I think to understand where we are, we have to understand where we come from. These are practices that have been passed on to us for generations. We've inherited these problems. It really did start with good intentions and even necessity. So, in episode two, I interviewed Dr. Terry Klemmer, who's one of the founders of critical care. And he talks about the first ventilators that ever existed. Um, And then back in the 70s or 80s, we started being able to keep patients alive on ventilators for longer. And in the 90s, we started being able to really treat ARDS. But we have to understand how archaic those ventilators were, right? They had no sensors, no monitoring. No sensitivity. They've just slammed air in and pulled it out. So, of course, patients could not tolerate being on the ventilator. Of course, there was no synchrony. And so they had to deeply sedate in order to manage the synchrony of, of patients on the ventilator. Now, ventilators have evolved throughout the last couple of decades, but our sedation practices haven't. And over a decade ago, I think the early 2000s, they started. Tracking those ARDS survivors, and they started realizing wow, we're actually giving patients post ICU PTSD. Memories of the ICU are actually protective against post ICU PTSD. Wow, quality of life is directly correlated with sedation in the ICU. Huh. And then, you know, mid 2000s, we start talking about early mobility and we start talking about A to F bundle, and we're making all this progress, and then COVID hits and we panic and we run back to benzodiazepines and I really feel like that happened because though we had this research and though we had these protocols developing we still did not change our culture we didn't change our attitude or understanding our empathy with patients because we didn't have the information out there accessible to everyone
0: Kelly you mentioned the term PS, uh, PTSD several times then we, we know intuitively and we're all aware that the research is increasing that shows that our patients do suffer uh, psychological trauma but in real terms from your experiences with patients what does that actually mean?
1: I think it's different for every patient. Um, you think about what they go through with delirium they are vividly living really grotesque and obscene scenarios and then they're kind of thrown back into real life, but they emotionally, psychologically really lived that. And so anything can be a trigger to throw them back into that scenario. So one patient thought that um, the religious music that the nurses were playing in her room were playing in a morgue or a mortuary because she was going to be buried alive. So she spent most of her time under sedation, trying to open her eyes and tell them that she was alive still because she thought she was going to be buried alive. So now when she gets on an elevator or goes to the grocery store and there's soft instrumental music playing, she goes into a panic at- panic attack. And suddenly she's back in that mortuary, trying to not be buried alive. Another survivor, Spencer Freeman has his own episode somewhere in the my 50s of episodes. Um, I, his delirium was awful and he had it for a long time and anything triggers him. So he worked as an attorney prior to being sick and when he tried to go back, he'd step into the courtroom and just the stress of being there would trigger him back into his delirium. He'd get so confused. Like he really thought that he was back in those um, hallucinations and scenarios that he lived that um, he would get lost again. It's almost like he was delirious all over again. So he now always has a beard. He did not have a beard before the ICU, but his beard is now a grounding point. So when he gets triggered and thrown back into his hallucinations... He can feel his beard and it brings him back to 2020, 2021. And now he knows he's post-ICU now. Um, So a lot of survivors don't really talk about their PCSE because they haven't necessarily worked through it. Um, But amongst themselves where they feel safe and understood and validated, um, it's a lot of panic attacks, a lot of depression, anxiety. um, And they feel so misunderstood because their families are just relieved that they're alive. And yet they don't feel like themselves. They don't feel like they're alive anymore. They're withdrawn. They can't socialize. They can't cope with life. They don't have the cognitive capacity to handle normal life. And now they're emotionally burdened with these psychological symptoms.
0: And that's just the psychological side. Um, What is the physical impact for people in that post-ICU period?
1: I think we really don't appreciate what we physically do to patients because it's so normal. Um, I wish that the United States, I think Australia might be the same. We have these l taxis, these long-term acute care hospitals that once patients can be weaned down to a certain point in the ventilator, they get trached, paid, sent out. So we don't rehabilitate them. We don't watch them take weeks trying to sit up and hold their own heads up. We don't see the struggle it is to get them walking again I wish that we did. Um, Other countries like Brazil, I think are much better at early mobility because they don't have LTACS. They can't just send them out and say, not my patient, not my problem. They have to rehabilitate them. So then they want to prevent that work for themselves. And of course, the suffering for patients. I think we don't understand um, how the respiratory system involves the muscles. We don't appreciate, we don't talk about the diaphragm. And yet... The diaphragm drives breathing. It facilitates it. And I just recently learned from my podcast episodes that we engage the diaphragm with sitting and walking. And then everything clicked because in the wake and walking ICU, hardly anyone has a tracheostomy. But this is a tertiary referral hospital that gets severe ARDS from all over the region. And patients are on the ventilator for weeks, but they're walking on the ventilator. So then once their lungs are better, then they still have their respiratory muscles to be able to support their lungs and they don't have to be trached and they walk out of the ICU. So we don't understand what it's like to struggle to breathe on our own again. And, and patients talk about that. I mean, the exhaustion of when they're weaning down the ventilator and the panic of not being able to take your own deep breaths and the psychological frustration of being that helpless that you can't even breathe on your own. And you're that dependent on a machine to stay alive. It's demoralizing. And, Patients, even long after, their handwriting is never the same. Um, their stamina is not the same. They take forever to be able to get up the stairs. Just things that we take for granted. Whereas in the waking and I ICU, a lot of patients after extubation are able to do at least a couple of stairs because they've already been doing steps while on the ventilator.
0: So what's the alternative? You obviously have um, experienced the um, the alternative. Can you describe it to those who aren't as familiar with it?
1: Yeah, and I know what I say sounds like telling you the world is flat, (laughs) but I really feel like this process is easier to implement if we don't automatically sedate every patient that's on a ventilator. Um, People always bring up exceptions, and of course there are exceptions. Not every patient is the same. We are individuals, every case is different. So why are we treating every patient the same and giving the same medications every time they're on a ventilator? Being on a ventilator should not be an automatic indicator for deep sedation. And I really appreciate that A to F bundle. And I, it has incredible outcomes and it's making a lot of progress. I do think that there are challenges to implementation because it comes with the assumption or the way at least we implement it. Assumes that we're going to automatically deeply sedate every patient's on a ventilator and then try to wean back later. My experience tells me that when we do that, we give patients delirium, and then we have the struggle of unleashing the beast that we've caused. We unmask the agitation, the terror, the horror that we've seen or that we don't see when patients are sedated, and yet it's still happening, right? So I would suggest that it's easier to let patients wake up right after intubation, give the induction sedatives, let them wake up, reorient them, tell them beforehand before you intubate them. And and if you want, you can let, I mean, they should have a choice. So you can explain if you want to be sedated, here are the risks. And it may not be all that comfortable. And I've asked patients that are awake on the ventilator, would you rather be sedated right now? And every single patient I've asked dozens, they look at me like I'm crazy. And they ask why they write on the board, why, or just give me the stink eye. They don't want to be because they want to have control of the situation, but We should give patients the option because that is an option. I don't think anyone's going to really want to choose an increased risk of mortality in that moment. So we let them wake up right after and we remind them of what we talked about 20 minutes ago. Let them feel the tube, look at it, see the ventilator, have family right there at the bedside. And it's amazing within 20 minutes, like an hour max, as long as they weren't delirious beforehand, they really are calm you have a board or their phone in their hands and they're communicating, asking their questions. And in many cases they can be unrestrained. Um, And we have them up walking a few hours later. And I think that is key for early mobility rather than let patients atrophy for a week or two weeks or even just five days, and then go through the struggle and the risk and danger of getting them out of bed. Let's just get them up as soon as they're stable enough so that they don't lose the ability to stand and walk. A lot of patients are standby assists. You know, they can have a peep of 1800%, yet they didn't lose the muscle and the connection to their muscles to be able to get up. So their lungs are sick, but the body's ready to support their lungs. And so it changes everything. And it really changes the workload for the team. It is a lot of work to turn, move, someone that's flaccid in the bed, that haven't had a bowel movement in two weeks, that we've given all these laxatives, that exploded all over the bed. I mean, it's just a lot of work and delirium is a lot of work. So I would suggest that it's actually a lot easier for everyone involved and all of the outcomes are better. When we don't give patients delirium, we don't let them be so deconditioned that they can't participate in their care. And we try to maintain their dignity and um, humanity throughout their whole critical care experience.
0: Kelly, what are some of the barriers that you've heard when you suggest this approach um, to people in other units? What, what do they say are the, the, the difficulties that they think there will be to implementing a strategy like this?
1: That's a great question because there are a lot of barriers. Um, and most of it's disbelief, right? Change is scary. Something totally different is uncomfortable for people. And I think a lot of the hesitancy, especially from nurses, comes from their experiences in weaning back sedation. I think we all know what that looks like when you're taking a patient that's been deeply sedated and letting them emerge. And you see thrashing, biting, coughing, gagging, trying to pull out the tube, trying to pull out their lines, swinging, kicking. I mean, we all know what that looks like. And it's it is not only so much work, but it's also... It's so hard on our souls because you see the terror in their eyes. And I think the assumption is made that that terror is just from the ventilator, just from the ET tube. And we have assumed for decades now that if a patient looks comfortable, therefore they are. And it makes us feel good. We've assumed and we say it in our communications amongst ourselves that we knock them out out of their misery. We make them sleep. We've been calling sedation sleep for decades. So why would we ever change? So here I come saying, they're not sleeping. Look at the study showing they're looking at their EEGs. That is not sleep. Listen to the survivors. We're traumatizing them. It's one, it's hard to think that we've been harming people because everyone gets into medicine wanting to alleviate human suffering. So here I am saying we've been doing it wrong. So that's hard to hear. But also just the thought of when I say we don't sedate patients, let them be awake and move on the ventilator. The media image that comes to mind, I'm sure, is the bucking rodeo delirious patient. And so I think it has to come down to educating and understanding why that scenario comes to pass, why patients are delirious, what sedation really does and what it's like. I mean, I think we'd all get really agitated and really delirious if we spent a week or two without sleep. And yet that's what we do to patients. So if we understand the reality, then we can overcome a lot of those barriers, a lot of that disbelief and um, obstinance to even trying this. Um I, it's fun. I'm doing a webinar program. So I meet with teams, the whole team every, all the disciplines together and we go through case studies, the research shown through videos and pictures. And so once, you know, you see a patient with a chest tube, people of 18 100%, that's oxygenating better walking than prone. Everyone's jaws drop, right? But that paradigm starts to shift. And then hearing their outcomes I think the exposure really changes our, our perspective. So I think it's totally fair for people to be really shocked and really opposed to this approach, but if they'll just listen, listen to survivors, listen to the research and then try it themselves. So these teams that have heard the webinar, they've started doing it with their own patients. They've let them wake up after sedation, worked with them, had the family involved and reorient them. And they're reporting that patients are coming out smiling And then they go to get them up and everyone's scared. They've got nine people in the room ready to catch this 350 pound COVID patient. And then he starts playing tic-tac-toe in the window and they've got one other person in there and he's totally fine. So once they have those moments of success and see what what it's really like and I sound less crazy, then it catches like wildfire and they keep thinking, wow, that patient walked out the doors, they discharged home, who else can we do this on? And then we start overcoming those barriers. So again, we have the our why. We have to give the how a try, and then seeing can be believing.
0: My special guest today has been Kelly Dayton, whose incredible series of podcasts is a must for all clinicians who are caring for critically ill patients. You can find a link to her podcast in the show notes for this podcast. Kelly, thanks for joining us to share your insights into this very important topic. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for MyOSLA wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.